Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got Beyond Fair Trade how one small coffee company helped transform a hillside village in Thailand. And I've got my returning guest, Mark Pendergrass, with me. Hey, Mark, how's it going? Hey, Bob, good. Hey, so um, this is an unusual book. You know, I I was at your lecture uh, a couple of months ago now, I guess, and it was such a wonderful story, and and I felt it's nice to have a a business story that's based in – Asia, but Thailand, like a develop. Even though it's not a developing company, country, it, it I still consider it a developing country, uh, especially in the hill tribes. So it's a great story in that sense. But it's also got this amazing twist with a Canadian company as well. So before we get into the book too much, um, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, you know, to qualify you a little bit. You wrote an amazing book on, I can't remember what was it, the history of coffee, or or what was that book. Yes, I wrote a book called Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. And that is what really led me to, to this book. It's in its second edition now. It's uh, it's funny. It's, it's really become my best-known book, I think, published mm-hmm. in all kinds of languages around the world. And uh, it's, it's sort of the history of coffee. Well, it's an amazing book. And, and if if uh, any of our listening audience uh, aren't uh, familiar with, with Mark's work, I mean, he did an amazing, another uh, huge tome of a book uh, about uh, the Coca-Cola company, and, and that was another fascinating read. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Uncommon Grounds uh, book is in that uh, in-depth uh, look at coffee. So what I wanted to ask, you know, with all that background and, and, and writing such an amazing book on coffee— what made you want to write uh, this Beyond Fair Trade book? Well, what happened is I write articles for the Wine Spectator magazine, which is a high-end uh, connoisseur's magazine for people who really like good wine. And the same sort of people who enjoy really fine wine also like good coffee. So I write an article for them every couple of issues, not every single one, about different kinds of coffee around the world. And I'm always looking for unusual aspects. So I had read in the trade journals about Doichang coffee from Thailand, and I had never heard of decent coffee, much less really, really good coffee from Thailand. Uh, It's not known for it. So I looked into it. I ended up interviewing John Darch, who is the uh, Canadian who started the roasting company to basically help this uh, hill tribe. And... I I was really taken with the story. Uh, It was an astonishing idea that this guy would uh, begin a roasting company mostly just to try to help one small village in the middle of nowhere in Thailand. And I thought, you know, this could be my second book about coffee, and that's what it ended up uh, being. So I ended up going to Thailand three times, to Vancouver a couple of times, where the uh, Canadian company is, and telling the story of sort of the juxtaposition of these two two cultures and two different, very different uh, entrepreneurs who, who led the efforts 
in each place. And so it's kind of a study of personalities uh, as well as of uh, a new business approach. Now, you know, it, it, you mentioned the different personalities, different business approaches. Um, is it that radically different how they're doing business in Thailand and, and how compared to how they're doing business in, in uh, North America? Or is it just because it's such an unusual story it stood out for you? No, I think it's both. Uh, let me let, let's go back to how it started in, in Thailand for a minute. I think that would be the uh, best way to go about this. Um, the 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 hill tribe are called the Aka, A K H A. They have no written language. They have been marginalized. They were not allowed Thai citizenship, uh, and they were really really struggling in this small village near uh, the city of Chiang Rai up up on a mountain. Uh, their village leader went to visit a guy named Wicha Pramyang, who's not an Aka, but who was a uh, a sort of a Thai aging hippie. He had gone through the, the mountains for many years, uh, trading items and uh, was a decent guy, but also knew how to make money. So he came up to see them and he saw that there was some coffee growing there. They had basically cut down most of their trees because they couldn't find a market for them. It had been one of the numerous items that they had tried to replace uh, their uh, opium poppy crop with uh, because they couldn't grow those anymore. It was illegal. And he said, you know, coffee is a big thing now in uh, Bangkok because Starbucks started there in 1998. Maybe this coffee is any good. Let me, t let me get some of it and test it out. And so Weecho was the kind of person who would obsessively research everything and he discovered that it was indeed very good coffee. And he led them to, and, and he, he really vertically integrated everything. He believed in roasting your own coffee. So there's this hysterical section in the book where they found an ancient uh, German roaster, took it apart, uh, dragged it up this mountainside where there are really no decent roads. It's all during mud season put it together again and tried to roast their first batch. Couldn't read German. Uh, the whole thing caught on fire, blew out all the electricity to the village, but eventually they got it to work. And so what happened was they started their own coffee house first in uh, Chiang Rai and then up on the mountainside. And then they even tried to start one in Bangkok, which was a disaster at first, but then that went well. Long story short, there are now about 500 uh, Deutschang coffee franchises all over Thailand. They're doing incredibly well. They are vertically integrated. They, they have a nice modern Italian roaster up there on the mountain now. And it has transformed the village, a place where people were starving to death or leaving and prostituting their children and, and just horrible things, uh, has now become... Uh, a very thriving place. Now, if you went there, Bob, you wouldn't know that necessarily. It looks like a third world village. You know, there are chickens and children in the streets. Uh, but in fact, uh, it's a boom town compared to what it was before. They now have, you know, electricity, water. Uh, they have a very good health clinic. 
uh, and uh, the school is much improved and, and they're planning to build a new school for tribes from 25 different villages. So it's really an, an inspiring story of, of what's been done there. Uh, so that was happening on the one side and they were beginning to do pretty well at the point at which, but Weicho wanted, he said, this is, you know, some of the best coffee in the world. We need to find an international market. And uh, a friend, a mutual friend, introduced him to John Darch. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about him. That they, they couldn't be more opposite if you ever met them. Uh, Weicha is this sort of ball of fire, little tiny guy who uh, has earrings and, and long hair going down his back and sits in a lotus position. Uh, John Darch is a rather formal British type guy who uh, was a banker. And he moved to uh, Vancouver uh, to be a banker, uh, but he became fascinated with the penny stocks and the mining entrepreneurs that he met. And eventually he became one of these uh, uh, mining venture capitalists and uh, made and lost uh, many fortunes in uh, gold, silver, uh, tin, uh, diamonds, uh, and potash. And potash is what led him to be in uh, Thailand. So it happens that at the point in 2006, when he was introduced to Weicha, that he had just made a fair amount of money selling uh, the rights to some potash. And he didn't intend to get involved, uh, he told me. He, he just thought, you know, he was being polite. But he was so taken with Weicha and the fact that he didn't ask him for any money. He was just telling him the story of this tribe and what they wanted to do. Uh, and he wanted a partner. He didn't want charity. And the way John has described it to me is that he regards it as one of his venture capitals. You know, if you're starting a mine, you have to do a lot of exploration. You have to put in a lot of money uh, before you ever uh, succeed. And most mines don't ever succeed. But, you know, once you do, you can, you can really get a return on your investment. So John decided to start a coffee company and put a substantial amount of money into it uh, with the idea that he would eventually make it back. Not only did he do that, he gave half of the company to the uh, farmers in this village so that they would share in the profits. And, uh, so he, he's very, very tender on the point of that this is not charity. He intends to make his money back. It's a good question as to whether he ever will, however, because it turns out he didn't really know what he was doing when he got into the coffee business. Uh, he had a friend who uh, went in with him initially who said, oh, this is easy. I used to import oranges. We can just import this coffee, sell it, no problem. Well, the coffee business is highly, highly competitive, especially the specialty business in uh, uh, British Columbia. You've got Kicking Horse, Ethical Bean. Uh, you've got lots and lots of different uh, uh, fair trade and organic coffees. And so the fact that Doi Chang was fair trade and organic was, was nice, but they were also having to charge more than the other uh, companies because they were paying more. The, the, the name beyond fair trade means that they were paying uh, a premium for, for the beans to, to help the farmers out. They have been able to get into that market. They're in Costco. They have expanded uh, into Toronto, uh, but they're still, it's a very slim profit margin. 
And, uh, you know, John's son, John uh, uh, A. Darch, they have different middle names. He's not technically a junior, is the uh, CEO of the company. And they have a very young group of idealistic people working very hard uh, near the Gastown district uh, in, in Vancouver. So it, it's an interesting story. It's a story in process. Uh, so I may have to go back and do a second edition of it in a few years to, to see where they've gotten to. One interesting wrinkle is that uh, uh, Weecha died. Uh, uh, I had actually become, I would call him a friend. Uh, we used to sing together around the fire at night. Uh, he's just a fascinating character. But in his... Uh, uh, early 60s, he had a massive heart attack and died a couple of years ago. And uh, it was a big question as to whether the ACA would be able to continue on and, and, and how things would go. They have uh, stepped up and uh, done very well indeed. And they've now made a deal with Singa Beer, which is a very large uh, beverage corporation in Thailand. So they've got a lot of support in, in that regard too. And, and they're spreading into Korea. Uh, they have a couple of outlets in Japan, uh, Malaysia. So it, it's, it's really quite an interesting story in Asia. And the Canadian story is uh, also quite interesting as to how do you sell something that sounds like it's Chinese tea <laughs> Doi Chang is not exactly a household word, uh, and get people to understand that they're buying very, very good coffee, but they're also helping to support uh, a lifestyle halfway around the world. And I think that's an interesting aspect of the story because more and more people are interested in where the products they buy come from and how the people who make them are being treated, you know, like Nike uh, sneakers and sweatshops and things like that. Um, so that was another aspect of the story that I think is quite interesting. Mm. Well, you know, you know, we've, we've touched on so much stuff in, in your introduction. So I wanted to, to, to go back and actually talk a little bit about, um, the, the use of, of this type of, of business structure, uh, to actually, overcome the charitable approach to helping uh, people out in, in different countries. And I know a lot of people that are, are very interested in uh, approaching business on this level. Uh, so you're not going in and saying, oh, like, you know, here's a million dollars, good luck and walking away. You're actually going in, you're participating, you, you become part of the community, you help them build their business. And that way you're, you're building something that, that will enable them to uh, go on for generations. You know, the, the guy that started the whole thing passes away, but yet it's got enough momentum that it's, it's able to still uh, re continue to make money, continue to survive. So do you feel that this could be a trend in the future for businesses that want to, uh, like, reach out and, and help organizations instead of giving hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars in, in charitable donations actually build a company with their... Uh, skill sets here in North America. Yes, I do. Um, in fact, I think it's essential that anyone who is trying to quote help somebody uh, first and foremost listen to what those people want uh, instead of going and imposing your ideas uh, like many NGOs have done in the past. 
and say, okay, we're going to build you a well uh, and then leave and they don't know how to fix the well and it wasn't really their idea of what they wanted in the first place. Uh, it, it makes a lot more sense to go and if you can live in that community for a while, uh, really listen to what people need and, and observe uh, what they want and then see if you can come up with uh, something that will actually help improve their lives in a way that they wish to have them improved. Uh, and that is happening, I think, more frequently. Uh, and in the coffee world particularly, there are uh, a number of companies that aren't just uh, going in and saying, oh, these are great beans and, and taking them out, but who, who become involved uh, in the communities that they are buying the coffee from and repeatedly go back and visit them. I don't know of another instance that's as involved as, as the Doi Chang example, but there are other cases where people are trying to encourage uh, roasting at origin, for instance. Um, in, in, in the case of coffee, um, mostly the, the profits are made after it's roasted, and that usually happens far away from where it's grown. Uh, and so this is an instance where uh, it's both, that it, it, they're roasting it at origin, but also uh, in Vancouver. So, yeah, I think that there are lessons to be learned. Each, each situation is, is unique, and you've got to kind of examine what you're trying to do. Uh, and, you know, John has brought in um, consultants to help him out. Uh, as well. Uh, so there's, there's no one size fits all answer, but I think that, that the issues you're raising are, are very real. Mm. Now, you know, when you, and you have sat down with John many, many, many times, um, for, for John, what was, what was the big thing for him? Where did he get out of it other than, okay, I'm going to invest, I'm going to give back to the tribe. As a business person, what did he learn? Well, I think he's learned that he needed to know more about coffee before he did this. <laughs> he, he, he told me, he said, I didn't really care if it was coffee or soybeans. Uh, I just was taken with these, uh, these people were hardworking and they had been persecuted. And now uh, I was in a position where I could perhaps do something for them. Uh, so I think that what he uh, has learned is that... Uh, you know, coffee is not uh, mining. <laughs> and uh, you're going into a saturated market uh, and you have to, uh, you know, be very strategic and work very hard. And he, but he's done that. And, his, and, and, and great credit goes to his son and to the whole team that they've uh, put together uh, to do this. Uh, there's a woman named Tanya Giacoboni who's been there from the beginning. I think we started out as their uh, uh, receptionist who, who is really a, a crackerjack and, and who knows everything about the coffee business now. And, and we also need to give credit to um, uh, their roaster, which is Canterbury Coffee, which is in Richmond. Uh, they don't actually have their own roasting facility. It's a whole other issue because they pay Canterbury a fair amount of money. On the other hand, Canterbury has all of these outlets and has helped them get into places where they otherwise wouldn't be. At some point, when they grow large enough, 
they may consider having their own roaster. So it's a, it's a complex business. Um, but uh, there, there's a guy at Canterbury named Eric Lightheart who also has been to Thailand many times and, and basically fell in love with the, uh, uh, with the Aka and uh, has moved heaven and earth to, to try to make the business work. So a, a lot of, you know, one other thing let me say about business, people tend to look at any do-gooding efforts of businesses with a jaundiced eye. They say, oh, it's greenwashing. Oh, they're not really trying to help. And sometimes that's no doubt true. But even with, like you mentioned that uh, I wrote about Coca-Cola, people particularly despise Coca-Cola and think that they're evil incarnate because, you know, their product makes people fat and it's bad for you. All of which has some validity. But, you know, Coca-Cola does a lot of good stuff, especially with uh, uh, clean water issues. Um, and I'm not quite so cynical as to think that the only reason they do this is to look good. I think there are human beings in every business. And why do you think philanthropists do what they do? Why do you think Bill Gates does what he does? Um, people actually do want to help. Uh, in some regards, and businesses should be given credit and encouraged to do that good also, in my opinion. No, I agree 100%. I mean, what I find fascinating is is the uh, people that, that don't understand that if you're going to run a charity or, or try and help a group of people, you've got to run it like a business. There's got to be a bottom line. There has to be accountability. There has to be a, a sustainable product that you can move forward regardless of what it is. Um, so that they can create uh, wealth on an ongoing basis, and not just for this year, but for years and years in the future, and, and hopefully indefinitely. And what I find interesting with this particular case is that, and we've kind of talked about it already, somebody going in and saying, oh, this is what you have to do. And I think they had a problem earlier where they had a bunch of German NGOs going in there and say, oh, you've got to raise this particular crop. And they said, well, we don't get it. So to be, good, to be able to go into um, an area where there is a, a, a tribe or a group of people or a city or even a country that's struggling and actually listen to what they want to do, what are you passionate about, what are you interested in, then build a business around that passion instead of saying, oh, you're going to do this. Well, that's just a different form of dictatorship. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a horrifying chapter in the book that you're referring to where a German uh, NGO came in and, and, you know, legitimately was trying to help. But uh, they introduced tomatoes and cabbages to, to the tribe uh, up on this mountain village in Deutschang, and, uh, which means Elephant Mountain, by the way, in Thai. And they did quite well with the tomatoes for a while. Uh, they were getting good money for them. But they had to use pesticides. They cut down all the trees, uh, the remaining trees, to grow it. Uh, no one taught them how to properly protect themselves from the pesticides, so it actually killed some people and made others quite ill. Uh, and then the bottom dropped out of the market because all the other uh, villages said, hey, this looks like a good thing. Let's, let's grow tomatoes. Uh, and uh, it turned out to be a complete disaster. And just when the bottom dropped out, is when the Germans left 
they said they declared victory and left uh, this disaster. Um, so that was really quite a, a cautionary tale. Oil. So has has any other tribe said, hey, look at these guys are doing coffee. They're doing well. Let's copy them. Let's see if we can basically improve our lifestyle as well. Yes, and that is happening. Um, there's there's a young Aka uh, who started a company called Aka Ama uh, and is doing pretty well with that. There's also the a royal uh, project called Doitung, uh, which is doing quite well with coffee. And and there's a, a Dick Man who actually introduced coffee as a, a agronomist and missionary. Uh, back in the 60s uh, to Thailand, his son uh, helped to develop uh, coffee and also was, was help, helping in Doi Chang for a while. Uh, and now they're, the third generation, uh, Richard uh, Mann, is helping. And I went on a tour with them into you know, a remote village where coffee is doing uh, wonderful things for villagers elsewhere in Thailand, too. So, yes, uh, it's not just this one story. And I think that more and more uh, people are recognizing that uh, Thai coffee, if it's grown, you know, to grow really good coffee, you have to grow it above about 3,000 feet uh, above sea level. Uh, it, that's where it prefers to grow and where the beans get harder and have developed more flavor. And there are uh, plenty of places in Thailand where that's so and where the soil is uh, rich. And each, you know, it's like wine. You talk about the terroir, uh, depending on where you grow the coffee, what type of uh, tree you use, the way that you process the coffee, uh, everything can affect the way it tastes and, and its value. And they're becoming more and more uh, sophisticated about this in Thailand now. Now, I wanted to, to touch on the, you know, the growth of the company in Thailand. It seems to be growing, you know, very, very rapidly. Do you think that they're getting more success because the um, uh, financial situation, the economic situation in Asia is a little bit more robust than what's going on here in North America, or it's just the way things are? I don't think it's because it's more robust there. I actually give a lot of credit to the Canadian company for having opened the, not only opened the international market for them, but getting a lot of press. Uh, people in Thailand are highly pleased when they see that uh, Western press is paying attention to them. I, I imagine they're they're uh, pleased that this book has come out. As a matter of fact, I'm hoping that it will get translated into Thai at some point. Um, but uh, I'm a little concerned because they're about to uh, have a free trade agreement uh, within Asia. Uh, because Doi Chang has sort of got first mover status, in other words, kind of like Coca-Cola, uh, they're already, they have good name recognition and they have good placement. I think they'll be okay, but up until quite recent, up until this time, there's been a protective tariff on coffee imported into Thailand, which has protected their own business somewhat. And that's going to stop uh, so that you'll be able to import beans, for instance, from China 
uh, with far less of a tariff than it is now. So it remains to be seen how that might uh, impact them. What do you think of the different business styles comparing the way business is done in Thailand uh, compared to Canada? <laughs> I'm not really an expert on all this, but I have observed that this this is not true of the Aka particularly, but in Thailand in general, you know, you can't go directly to what you really want. You have to sort of be polite and if somebody says, oh, yes, yes, no problem, they could very well mean, no, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have to be rather patient um, in Thailand uh, about getting things done. And there is rampant corruption uh, as well uh, on various levels. So there's a, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, what can I do to make this, this all happen? But as I say, I don't think that that, pertains to uh, the village of Doi Chang particularly, but it, it certainly does seem to apply to many other business enterprises in, uh, in, in Thailand. Well, I think it's also, you know, it's a different business history that they've got there. If you're looking at, at uh, China and uh, other countries in that particular area, um, if you're from North America and a business person and you go there, and you're horrified that, oh my gosh, this guy's getting paid out and we can't do this, this is horrible. That's basically being biased and not uh, not having a great business sense of how things are done. I'm not saying you, I'm advocating uh, corruption, but I think what we perceive as corruption is just the way business has been done for 4,000 years. So it, it's, it's interesting that uh, uh, I think a lot of business people that do go to Asia and try and do business the North American way, uh, a lot of times get shut down or become very, very frustrated because they don't see that they're actually insulting people instead of trying to uh, improve their, their lot in life or improve the company that they've been assigned to help. Well, of course, you know, I don't know if your listeners know, Bob, but you you uh, lived in Bangkok for quite some time, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know all about Asia and how <laughs> things work there. Um but you know yeah. better than I do. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's you know you, you talk about corruption and stuff, and and every business is corrupt in a certain way. Um, some are amorally corrupt. Some are corrupt out of ignorance. It, it's there's no such thing as a, a perfect company that is pure, and uh, I think that's with with many people. It's the same way. It's how how you're trying to do good things with your company, either internally, uh, trying to make uh, the people's lives that work for your company better. Uh, those things, I think, should be addressed. Things that I think need to be addressed in Asia, uh, past uh, the corruption of payola or whatever, is, is like horrible working conditions. I think that's much worse than somebody paying off somebody to make something happening uh, happen. Unless, of course, they're paying off an official to turn a blind eye to uh, people basically uh, that are in slavery. Well, I agree. In terms of working conditions, by the way, it made me think of if people, if you go to YouTube and put my name, Mark Pendergrast, and put Civet, Civet Coffee, C-I-V-E-T, Coffee, you'll find a cute little uh, video I put up there of my efforts 
to find wild civet cat coffee on the mountainsides of uh, Doicheng. And the working conditions are beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, but very uh, steep and muddy. And you can hear me panting a great deal as I'm running around there. Uh, I did discuss, you know, there's this big, uh, this is a, a different topic, but uh, an interesting one. Um, civet cats are not really cats. They're, uh, uh, I think, marsupials. And they, uh, but they love really ripe coffee cherries and they are nocturnal and very shy. They come out at night. They'll eat the, these prime uh, coffee cherries and it goes through their intestinal system and it strips out the beans and then you poop them out the other end. So it's kind of like a wet processing system naturally. And when it comes out the other end, it, it looks kind of like an O. Henry bar. They're stuck together and they're highly prized. They, they get a lot, a lot of money for these things. It's called Kopi Luwak in Indonesia. So uh, Doi Chang uh, people found, hey, we've got civet cats here and, and we'll collect this stuff and we'll sell it for uh, a lot of money, which they do. And it's very good. It's it, I mean, interesting. I don't think it's worth the money, but it's interesting. Uh, but it turns out, of course, when anybody does something like this, uh, someone is going to become unethical. And so a lot of people have gotten uh, civet cats, put them in cages, and force-fed them uh, coffee. And so there was an expose a couple of years ago on BBC showing this. There was a big movement to boycott all civet coffee uh, because you couldn't tell whether it was uh, grown free-range or not, so to speak. So I was proving that uh, the Doichang really is uh, natural and, and collected in the wild. Uh, and so you can... Look at that little YouTube and, and find the working conditions <laughs> of people who are growing coffee. It, it's really hard uh, to to pick the coffee on these hillsides. And, and you have to pick coffee selectively. You can't just, just strip it off. Um, you have to go back repeatedly to the same tree because it ripens at different times. Uh, and it, it's rather complex to uh, process the 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 cherries once you, you pick them. So it's an interesting process. And I do talk all about that in, in my book as well. Now, you know, obviously, since this is a story-based book, it's something you read from front to back. Um, but for you, is there one particular part of the book or, or, or one chapter that you think speaks um, the most to uh, what's going on there on, on a business level? Chapter six is called the creation of a Canadian coffee company. And chapter seven is learning curves in Vancouver. So those are the two that I think uh, are most interesting in terms of developing a business from scratch in a saturated market in, in, in Canada. Uh, and then I think that the, the last chapter, and then there's an epilogue called lessons from two continents uh, where I kind of, uh, I summarized what I had gleaned from all of this in terms of not just business, but uh, social and, and, and uh, uh, ethical uh, implications of the entire story. So if people want to skip, they could, they could do that. But, but I infinitely prefer they read the whole thing. It's not that long. It's about uh, 250 pages and uh, well worth your, your, your time, I hope. Well, it's definitely an interesting read, and, and I like it because it's it's a very human story, 
uh, and there's some hilarious moments in the book for sure. Uh, do you have a? I know you talked about the the uh, coffee machine disaster or the coffee roaster disaster that they had. Um, are there any other uh, chapters or, or, or stories in the book that really rang true for you? Um, Weecha, he he left his family down in the lowlands for a lot of the time. He he stayed in a little hut a little grass hut up there, which he called his palace as a, as a joke, uh, until he found a, a python sleeping in his bed uh, twice, which is a good indication because, uh, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is because of the tens of thousands of coffee trees being planted and uh, uh, also a lot of shade trees, coffee grows best under a higher canopy and it's kind of an almost like a rainforest that provides shade and also humus from the leaves falling down, uh, especially for organic coffee, which this is. So now it's been reforested and the biodiversity has returned in a huge way to these mountainsides, including, you know, some of their traditional game animals like barking deer and pythons. So, uh, we before he died, he ended up moving and sleeping behind his desk in the uh, coffee academy, which they had built. So I thought I found that sort of amusing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the coffee academy. I think that's very interesting. They have an ongoing educational uh, segment to the, to their company as well. That's right, and they provide free uh, agronomy lessons to the farmers, not only from Doichang but from uh, villages all around. It's a beautiful facility. It's a, it's, I think it's got 57 poles, which is symbolic of the 57 generations that the Aka are supposed to memorize back to their sort of original Adam figure. Um, but I attended one of these classes where an agronomist from Chiang, Rai, uh, Chiang Mai University was explaining how, uh, about the uh, coffee borer, which is this nasty little bug which will uh, get into the seeds and the natural way of capturing them and how to do that. And it was just really interesting to, to uh, see everybody riveted by this conversation and passing around these, you know, you can make them out of uh, little plastic bottles and you put some kind of uh, smelling device, a pheromone of some kind that attracts the bugs in there and then they drown. Um, but that's, you know, they also teach them uh, how to handle their money um, uh, and, you know, a lot of sort of business life skills, uh, at this Academy of Coffee. So it's been a, and, and you really have to credit, uh, Darch, uh, with, with funding that it was with his initial funding that they were able, able to build that Academy of Coffee. And, you know, they, they had a big ceremony where there was a huge gong and John went over and whacked the gong and everything. You can see how this would, I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing. I, I was there, uh, they have an April uh, event every year where they uh, have the Aka come from many different countries for sort of a big celebration. And there's dancing and there's games. Uh, it's, it, it's quite something. And, and now that they have paved the road up there, it's turning into something of a tourist place too. So people are discovering that they can, you know, drive up there for an afternoon. Uh, and, and take a tour. 
And if people do that, I urge them to not only go to the Deutsching uh, uh, coffee drying area, and there's a nice little uh, coffee shop, and there's a there's a Arroy's where you can buy some wonderful uh, soup. But go down into the village itself and walk around, uh, which is further along, uh, and you'll get a real experience. So uh, it, it, it's really a, a highlight of my writing career is to get to go to some of these really fascinating places and have an excuse to forage around and not just do you know, a surface uh, a tour, but actually you know, go in and try to talk to people. And by the way, talking to people was a challenge because many of the Aka uh, do not speak uh, Thai. So uh, more and more they are, but, you know, even 10 years ago, many of them did not, most of them didn't. So I would have to have two translations uh, if I was going into the village to talk to somebody. Anand Pawa, who uh, is a a Thai who was educated uh, uh, at uh, Simon Fraser University was just wonderful because he knew English and Thai, but he didn't know Akka. So we would bring one of the Akka with us who knew Thai, who would talk to the villagers, who would tell Anand what they said, and then Anand would tell me what they said. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that um, what's happened there in in that particular village – has grown and and surpassed the original vision of uh, Wichai. I don't think you could surpass his original vision. He was a, a a visionary in the true sense of the word. You know, he 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 thought that uh, Deutsching was going to be a household word around the world for for the best coffee in the whole world. Uh, he he had absolutely no limits to his imagination. He also wanted to, you know, they were going to uh, sell cordyceps, which is this bizarre sort of uh, uh, fungus that grows out of spiders and centipedes. And they are doing that. Uh, He was going to grow mushrooms. He was going to have energy drinks. Um, There was no end to all the stuff that he was going to do. And and, uh, so some of them, have fallen by the wayside. Some of them they're still pursuing. Oh, they also make uh, soap out of uh, the coffee, out of espresso coffee, kind of like lava sort of soap. Uh, They have special honey that the bees uh, pollinate the uh, very fragrant uh, sort of jasmine-like blossoms of coffee and gives a unique uh, taste to the honey, but it's kind of rare because it's a short blossoming season. Uh, they grow macadamia nuts there as shade trees uh, for the coffee, uh, and they're delicious. So it's it, it's a little more diverse than just coffee. Well, it seems to me that that you know they've really looked at it on a very strategic level as well. I mean, it's not just pie in the sky entrepreneurial dreaming. It's like okay, if we're going to do this, what else can we do? And if we're going to do shade trees, why don't we use? Uh, a, a shade tree that actually has a product attached to it. I mean, that's pretty sophisticated thinking. Yeah. Well, I, I, as I said, you know, Weish is he's a funny guy. He he uh, he said, "Oh, I'm not in this for the money, and I'm just trying to help, etc." But at one point, when he was uh, feeling quite expansive one evening, he said, "I was born to make money." <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think that's probably true. 
what's, what was interesting was that John Darch and Weecha Pramyong, for all of how they seemed, you know, so different, were quite similar, um, I think, in terms of uh, spinning off lots and lots of ideas. Some of them aren't going to work. Uh, some of them will. Uh, but good-hearted people who truly are, are, are men of their word uh, and who uh, truly take joy in life. You know, they really are interesting people to be around because they're not in it particularly to make money. Uh, making money is a game. Uh, it, it's funny. I interviewed John's uh, private banker who deals with lots of people, this is in Vancouver, who uh, uh, deals with a, a lot of, uh, you know, billionaires. And she told me, she said, these guys never retire. It's not, it's not from the money particularly. It's that it's their joy in life. Uh, and uh, poor John's wife, Louise, uh, would love for him to retire and, and, and stop dabbling in all these different things. Because it's not just coffee he's into. He's, he's still doing potash stuff. He's doing real estate stuff. He's doing all kinds of things. But I, 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 I'm afraid he probably will just keep uh, keep on trucking <laughs> until he has. I hope he doesn't have a massive heart attack as we just did. But uh, he's an interesting fellow. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you're supposed to be objective when you're a writer. And I am, I think. But I, I really did come to, to admire these guys. Well, you know, after listening to you describe, you know, their approach to life, I think that is one of the uh, big enticements of uh, people to get and, and start their own business is the ability to have an ongoing project that they get way more than just money from. I mean, that to an entrepreneur is what it is, is the next project. That's what drives them forward. Sure, they make money. Some make a little bit of money. Some make a ridiculous amount of money. But if you really sit down with them, the ones that are really happy and are glowing and have this amazing energy, it's not about the money. It's about doing the project and, and the strategy behind it and, and educating people and, and motivating people and doing all that type of stuff. That, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful lifestyle that gives back way more than they're putting into it. And it's, it's not too dissimilar from my lifestyle, actually, in terms of writing books, except that I don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do get to, you know, take on very, very different projects that, that have taken me all over the world and that allow me to stick my nose in places that other people don't get to. So um, there's a certain kinship there. Oh, absolutely. Um, before we go, is there any tip or information you would like to give uh, our listening audience? Well, let me let me talk about coffee a minute. It's funny. Everybody thinks that I wrote this book on Common Grounds, The History of Coffee, because I was a coffee snob and coffee lover. That's not true. I didn't like coffee very much uh, when I wrote the when I started to write the book. I was interested in it because it's a way to look at a product that means so much to people, but it's not really essential. And it's grown in some of the most beautiful, but some of the most impoverished places on earth. And then it's consumed in some of the, the most wealthy places on earth. But in the course of doing the research, people kept 
teaching me about good coffee and what it was. And now I've become a true coffee snob. And I and, and so people will ask me, what's your favorite coffee? And I will say, you know, that's like asking a wine connoisseur, what's the best wine? You know, there are lots and lots of different wonderful coffees. I will say that they should try Doi Chang because it's balanced. It has really uh, a nice snapping acidity, which sounds like it would be bad, but it's actually a good thing. It's what sort of like explodes in your mouth. It's got some nice fruit notes, kind of a little chocolatey aftertaste. Um, but many, many coffees are fascinating to have. So I love Guatemalan Antigua. I love Kenya Double A. I love uh, Sumatran uh, uh, Aceh. I, uh, I like Papua New Guinea coffee, uh, coffee from Rwanda and Tanzania and Costa Rica and Panama. It's just a wonderful way to tour the world through your sensory organs every morning when you make a new cup of coffee. And you can make it in different ways, too. So it's just a simple little thing. You know, it's just a little seed from a fairly low-growing tree or shrub, as you will. But, uh, you know, people are just endlessly inventive in how they find out about our world around us and the coffee tree is one of those little bits in our world around us that i have become fascinated by hmm. we've been chatting with mark pentagrass beyond fair trade how one small coffee company helped transform a hillside village in thailand it's a fascinating read it's a quick read but well worth checking out and if you're into coffee, you're going to love this book. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.